Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. Fairies and fairy stories have fascinated us for centuries. They've been present in British art and literature, certainly from the 1600s, with the earliest mention being dated as the 13th century. But what if, in the early 1900s, the world was fully aware of and accepting of the existence of fairies? What if academics in Oxford and Cambridge studied them as diligently and thoroughly as they studied archaeology or the classics? Joining us today is Heather Fawcett, author of the marvellous book Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies, which details a female Edwardian academic researching fairies in a timeline where fairies are a mysterious but influential part of the world. Thank you for joining us, Heather. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I started off as a children's author. Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies is my first adult fantasy novel. Um, My first adult anything, actually. And it is an epistolary novel set in the early 1900s, as you mentioned, um, about a scholar of the folk. And she is... Uh, working on basically her magnum opus um, from a from a scholarly standpoint, which is this comprehensive encyclopedia of all the known species of fairy. And she just has one entry left, which is on the hidden ones who live in this kind of far northern subarctic um, Scandinavian country called Leosland. And so she travels north to document their existence, essentially. And she's followed by her kind of academic um, arch rival slash frenemy, uh, Wendell Bambleby, who ends up kind of teaming up with her. And they end up inadvertently kind of getting caught up in kind of the fairies business, which is never a good idea where the folk are concerned, and having to kind of extricate themselves from that. So it's a story about friendship and about found family and about some fairly creepy fairies. Regular listeners will know that I'm usually the horror expert here and I like my dark stuff, but they will also know that I do like my romance. And I have to say that I read a description of this as being a grumpy romance. and It really is. It's just, it's, it is charming. It is whimsical. It's grumpy. And you know what? I hadn't thought of the fan family aspect, but now that you say it, of course, Emily herself doesn't have a lot of family influences and yeah. It, and what happens in the the novel without giving away spoilers really does kind of bring into that. Uh, But I just got swept away with it. It was great. But let's think about more serious things than grumpy romance. We'll save that for later. So (laughs) if we think about the later part of the 19th century, that was pretty much a boiling pot for fairy stories and artwork because the Victorians really got their teeth into them. Mm -hmm. But what was the view of fairies in the Edwardian era that you were writing in? I mean, let's leave aside some alternative timelines for the moment. Just how did real Edwardians view fairies? Yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, I didn't do a huge amount of research into the kind of fairy folklore of the of the day. Um, I am somewhat familiar with kind of Victorian attitudes towards fairies. But for me, kind of the interest came into crafting this alternative world. So in Emily's world, 
fairies have been, so this is kind of headcanon at this point, um, <laughs> but fairies were discovered in the early 1600s um, in Emily's world. And there have been scholars who have been studying them as actual creatures, not as just kind of folkloric folktales for several hundred years at, at kind of the point when the story takes place. So it really is a very different world um, from ours. And yeah, kind of the development of, of the thinking in Emily's world on fairies is just so drastically different from our own and because they are a part of her world. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't do a ton of research into Edwardian fairies and in sort of Edwardian fairy culture because it wasn't really relevant. It's a different world. So what made you want to pick the Edwardian era in particular? If you said they've been studied from the early 1600s, why not set it earlier or later? What, mm-hmm. what was it about? The, was it 1901, is it your set? It's set or 1909, I forget. Um, 1909, yeah. That's it, yeah. So what, <laughs> that's a very specific date. What made you think that's the one I'm going to go for? So part of it is that I wanted to do something a bit different. I do find that there are kind of time frames that fantasy authors tend to return to again and again. Nothing against books that are set in these time frames, but um, the Victorian era is very popular. Um, also kind of a pseudo medieval type setting is, is very common in, in fantasy. And so part of it was kind of a more practical desire <laughs> just to do something a bit different and try to set the story in a time when you know, you don't, you don't see it as often in, in fantasy. So that was part of it. But the other half was kind of, and um, this is where I might get into trouble with historians. (laughs) I'm not a historian myself, but the way that I envisioned the Edwardian era is this kind of transitional time between the kind of pre-technological era that came before and kind of our modern day, you know, there were a lot of inventions that um, kind of gained popularity during the time. There was electricity, there was, you know, the automobile, telephones. And so I really kind of see that era as kind of like a threshold between one world and another. And for me, kind of symbolically, that was important in terms of the themes of my book, which is, of course, a lot about thresholds and a lot about doors between different worlds. So it was it was kind of nice thematically for me to kind of play with this with this time frame. Um, as well as having kind of a practical reason. When I think of the Edwardian era, I think of the Edwardian Ladies' Diary, which was sort of a journal that came out that sort of, you know, got all these wonderful little bits and pieces in it. And it struck me that obviously Emily Wells' Encyclopedia of Fairies is the name of the book, but actually it's written in kind of a journal style. So as well as doing her encyclopedia, Emily is also working on the journal. So what made you Mm -hmm. think that, a journal style would be a good way to tell it rather than just sort of say um, normal third person narrative? Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually it was, it was something that happened um, organically without me. Like when I sat down to write Emily Wilde, I wasn't actually writing an epistolary novel at the beginning. I was just writing a first person narrative. But then as I got along, as I got further along and it actually only took me, I think a few, it was only a few pages into the story where I realized that actually this is, Emily is writing this. So it was something that I didn't plan. It just kind of happened. And I think that in some ways, the kind of epistolary structure really, really suits Emily as a character, because I think that she's someone who is a bit difficult to get to know. (laughs) She does have that kind of prickly personality. And I think that really her journal is maybe one of the few places where she really kind of lets her guard down um, and kind of expresses something of what she's feeling. So yeah, I think that 
it, even though it did happen organically, I think that if I had made a conscious decision earlier, it would have been to, to do the same, to do the same thing, to write as if it was Emily's journal, because that just allowed for a really good kind of entryway kind of into Emily's thoughts that we might not have had as much access to in other POVs. So I wanted to ask about the idea of magic and fairies going hand in hand with academia, because they're not really things that tend to go together. You, you know, magic and fairies are, you know, at least in, in our world, they are the things people believe in and, and get laughed at or scoffed at. You know, it's if, if mm-hmm. um, an academic in our world were to go to say, I'm going to research fairies. I mean, unless they were doing it from a literature or his, historical like view of that, they would be, as I said, laughed at. So I mean, mm-hmm. what made you want to have a story where like scientists, anthropology, you know, that kind of real scientific method, etc., is involved with um, magic, fairies, and things that are just so outside. Let me try that again without the cat meowing. <laughs> so what made you want to explore you know, the idea of fairies from this scientific and academic point of view? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, because it's true. Yeah, you don't, unless you're a folklorist studying fairies as, you know, creatures from our, our, you know, past mythologies and past folktales. Yeah. You wouldn't really see that in academia. Um, for me, so Emily Wilde was partly inspired and probably some readers have already guessed this, but it was partly inspired by Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark, which is one of my all time favorite fantasy novels. And, I think I've, I've always been really fascinated in particular by the character of Mr. Norrell. Um, and I think that he's just really fascinating because he is this person who is fascinated by magic, but he doesn't really want to do it. He's interested in it um, kind of from a sort of philosophical sort of um, theoretical perspective. And I just find that really fascinating. So kind of taking these concepts that are often portrayed as fundamentally unknowable as magic generally is, especially in fantasy, and kind of trying to make them knowable to our sort of limited, <laughs> limited human brains. Because I mean, I think that there's, I think there's something fundamentally human about that. Um, and I think that we see that in other aspects of human existence, right? Because we live in a universe that we don't know very much about. And we have, you know, experiences that we don't always fully understand. And there's a lot about human existence that we don't know and may never know. And yet that doesn't stop us from trying to figure this stuff out and to write it down (laughs) and to phrase it in ways that are, again, somewhat limited human brains can understand. So I just think that there's something fundamentally human about that, that transcends the fantasy genre and it was you know interesting for me to kind of get a chance to play with it well i mean you're right in the sense that even just stories the the earliest stories the earliest mythologies were humans trying to explain the world around them and trying to Mm -hmm. work out what it was before they had sort of science as we know it and then right you know when we first sort of developed real like philosophy and you have 
one of the first things Aristotle did was start, you know, building a taxonomy to, he was obsessed with like sea creatures, I believe. And so he was always, he was out with the lobsters and the crabs. And that's how he got like the scientific names for things is because Aristotle started doing it. Um, But yeah, I I think that is, it's true. Like we like to not compartmentalize, but we like to label things. We like to try to understand in our way and by Mm -hmm. kind of naming things, by classifying things, that kind of builds in a structure and helps us feel more in control in a way of something that is completely uncontrollable and mysterious and weird. Digging down into to fairies a little bit more, um, as a footnote to her research, Emily notes that the distinction between she um, and the, the unseely or the unshe has long ago been abandoned. So why did you decide to do away with this distinction, which is, um, you know, amongst people who really enjoy reading books about the fae, they would be quite familiar with that. Um, and Tell us a little bit about the the kind of classifications that you used instead and how you arrived at them. Yeah, I really like that question because you're right. There is, and actually this does exist in certain folkloric traditions. Um, I believe in Scandinavian folklore, you do see a kind of division between light and dark in terms of the folk. But yeah, so I mean, the two main, just speaking more generally, the two main division, like the two main categories of fairies in Emily's world are the courtly fae and the common fae. And I chose that kind of structure simply because that's what I see in folklore and in my readings of folklore. Um, You see the kind of human-like fairies who are oftentimes depicted as you know, beautiful women that, <laughs> that men encounter out in the in nature somewhere. And then you also see these kind of smaller sort of helper fairies or sometimes not super helpful fairies. And one of the stories that I always think of is The Shoemaker and the Elves, which is actually one of the stories that helped to inspire Wendell's character. So yeah, to me, it was just a very sort of natural divide to kind of have this kind of structure and and have it as the foundation of, of Emily and, and what she studies and of dryadology. Um, in terms of the sort of divide between good and evil, the unseely or or seely or whatever the tradition has in, in terms of labels, I just kind of found that it was a little bit limiting. And I felt like in, in my own readings of folklore and of in fairy stories, I found that all fairies, regardless of how helpful they could be, also had this kind of dark side to them. So, I mean, they could be, they could be a friend to you, but they could be quite malicious towards somebody else. And so I wanted to kind of have that capriciousness of fairies that I see in folklore built into the fairies in Emily's world, because um, there's just no easy divide between good and evil. And that was in, in a way more interesting to me than having that dividing line because I like having <laughs> all the idea that all fairies can be dangerous if you tick them off. So don't tick them off. <laughs> I feel like expanding on on this a little bit, why, why are we still so fascinated with the fae? Because I feel like they really have never left us and they've certainly never left fantasy. That's a really good question. Yeah. And I do think that they have been popular for a while. Um, I remember one of the sort of 
maybe modern classics <laughs> being uh, tithed by, by Holly Black, which I think actually came out in the early 2000s. And yep, yep. A, I read it years yeah, ago. <laughs> yeah, such a good story. And it was a really big book at the time, too. So, I mean, fairies have been popular in fantasy for a while and obviously before that as well. Um, in terms of their kind of current popularity, I don't know. I have this kind of interesting theory that perhaps it is a bit of a generational thing. As someone, like I'm a millennial, and as someone who, you know, grew up in the 90s, I was absolutely obsessed with Labyrinth, um, with David Bowie. <laughs> and I think that that might have been part of what actually sparked my kind of initial fascination with fairies and kind of fairy adjacent creatures. And so part of me kind of wonders, like, hmm, I wonder if it was this kind of shared generational experience that we're now seeing in people who are at the age where they are writing books about fairies. Um, but I don't know. I mean, that's just speculation. I also think that fairies are just kind of timeless and endlessly fascinating to authors, largely because there's so much that you can do with them. Um, they're just very rich soil for writers. And I think that is partly down to the kind of diversity within fairy folklore and just the many different types of fairies that you see in different folkloric traditions and in different cultures. Yeah, there's just a lot. There's a lot you can do with them. And I think that is just very creatively, that's something that I think a lot of authors are really drawn to. Yeah, you're talking to like three yeah. huge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nodding along here. Yeah, uh, we actually, we did a whole episode on the labyrinth like ages ago because we love it I so much. <laughs> it's it's great but i i also just wanted to touch on something you said earlier about like how you liked the idea of fairies that weren't just good or evil like they had more that they could do like no one is that black or white you know people can be like good people but you can still piss them off and then gonna fight back or they you know like we can't be all good or all bad and I think that's something you know we come across a lot when we talk about because um, obviously this podcast is is a lot focused on like gender and you know we want to see better gender representation and I feel like a lot of sort of historical stories put female characters into two buckets where you can have the really good woman or the really bad woman. And there's no in-between. It's like they're either one or the other. And I think that was, in a way, that was a nice, that's a nice thing about fairies in that they were allowed a bit more freedom. They were allowed to be somewhere in between, which to us is like normal. Like that's just people. Um, (laughs) But but they they have always, at least to me, you know, in, in what I've read and seen and, you know, like, the women, female fairies were allowed to get it wrong. They were allowed to have tantrums, but still be good. Like I'm actually sitting here thinking about uh, the Disney version of Sleeping Beauty where um, the fairies all like have their little quirks that make them maybe, you know, they have a temper or they're really changeable or they're, but you know, like they have flaws. Mm Mm-hmm. And they were allowed to have that and still be the good fairies. Whereas like Sleeping Beauty herself, she's just 
you know, the the ideal woman. She is there is no personality. There's no uh, nothing to her really. Um, so I, I think to me that's one thing that I have always loved about fairies in, in these kinds of stories is that they were given at least the female fairies were given more to do. They were given more personality, mm-hmm. <laughs> just more. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think that there is something kind of in a lot of of fairy folklore that kind of transcends gender and I mean maybe it's just the fact that these creatures are outside of <laughs> the human experience but I do think that it's something that makes fairies just very very interesting um to us especially today yeah um, and also it makes me think that especially in the Irish tradition when you know you talk about Tuatha de Danann um mm-hmm. and the the fact that they were originally gods and goddesses they were ineffable they were these creatures who you know there's this really powerful myth associated with them like they actually descend from on high like and they they land on a mountain top and it is very um there's a lot of kind of divinity about that and the christians were you know particularly the priests because they were obviously uh, literate they reinvented like christianity does to a lot of pagan law, um, they reinvented the idea of the Tuath Day as not as gods and goddesses, but as fairies, um, mm-hmm. because that meant that you know it didn't threaten the idea of a, the Christian god. If they were reduced to fairies, to beings of the other world, then they could still very much be a part, an accepted part of. Irish culture and indeed the kind of wider culture of the British Isles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder whether, you know, in a way that that's helped to preserve them and to preserve our interest in them. Yeah, I think that that's definitely, that's, I think that's probably, that's probably true. And yeah, it's interesting as you were saying that I was thinking about kind of Icelandic um, fairy folklore where they are portrayed as um I believe they're portrayed as, as angels who were cast out of heaven because they couldn't decide between between Satan and God. So it's this interesting kind of situating fairies within and sort of without the Christian canon. And yeah, I think maybe that is what kind of gave them <laughs> gave them almost permission to um, to still be part of the culture. I mean, yeah, my example that I always remember is that they said there were unbaptized baby souls just kind of randomly wandering around because they didn't have any place. Right. But reading Emily Wilde, it makes me wonder what, in Emily's world, where do the fairies come from? Because they don't strike me as being unbaptized babies or angels or anything like that. Did you, do you know in your own head or are they just as mysterious to you as they are to the reader? I think they are very mysterious. However, that being said, I do think that it's likely that. And I'm trying to like answer this question without giving spoilers. <laughs> for no, it can be so hard sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I will say that there are, I think in Emily's world, there are probably a lot of different theories about where fairies came from and who they are. Um, as we discussed earlier, there's this kind of desire to kind of grapple with these questions that might seem fundamentally unknowable. Um, and I think that extends to kind of the origin of these creatures. But yeah, I, I don't really, I will say, I don't really situate them within um, Christianity. Emily's world is very different from ours. It is much more secular. And so the explanations that they've come up with will be kind of their own sort of theories. But again, I don't want to say too much. <laughs> I'm sorry to be so vague. <laughs> Well, let's have a chat about something that maybe isn't too spoilerish um, and say that obviously there are a lot of rules in um, the Encyclopedia of Fairies that 
Emily follows. And I love the fact that it almost reflects her own character because she likes rules. She likes order. Um, and there's a dichotomy, isn't there, between the mischievous fae who run around and do stuff and, and make mischief and the fae who have to follow the rules. So I guess I was asking, you know, what rules did you take from history and from other folklore? What rules did you make up? Were there any that you particularly thought, yeah, that's cool and I'm going to have that? <laughs> and how did you balance between making them mischievous and making them be rule bound, which is always a problem with fairies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, I tried to stay as close to kind of folkloric conceptions of fairies as I could. I, I'm aware that there are a lot of different things you can do with fairies and with fairy folklore and fantasy. And there are a lot of different takes on fairies. Um, kind of there's the Byronic sort of hero <laughs> ideal <laughs> that you see fairies taking on, especially in more romantic leaning fantasy. I really wanted to portray them as, as they are in folklore, as these creatures that you don't necessarily want to have them around. Because of course, in, in the past, people were quite afraid of fairies for the most part. Like, yes, they could give you, they could do favors for you and they could, you know, keep your house clean depending on the type of fairy in question, but they could also do a lot of damage to you. They could curse your family for generations if they, if it entered into their head to do that. So yeah, I wanted to keep them kind of in a general sense. I wanted to keep them kind of true to the folklore that I was reading. Um, and I mean, there are a lot of different you know, specific examples that I could give of that. Um, so there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that come in threes. There's that kind of pattern that you see actually in fairy tales in general, but in, in fairy folklore a lot. So I wanted to have that represented. Um, fairies are afraid of salt in Emily's world. They don't like salt at all. They can also be afraid of metal and metal can be something that hurts them, which are all things we find in kind of traditional folklore. Also, I think a lot of the kind of smaller a lot of the smaller fairies and this is something that I also like about stories like Rumpelstiltskin I think kind of the core of, of fairies is they're just kind of fundamentally chaotic um like they they don't they don't make a lot of logical sense um so I mean in the Rumpelstiltskin story it's there's this powerful fairy who can spin straw into gold he can literally make gold and yet he chooses to kind of enter into this arrangement with this peasant girl I think she's the daughter of a miller or something. And in exchange for a necklace, he offers to basically make gold for her, this little trinket, you know, that this peasant girl owns. And of course, that doesn't make any logical sense. Why would a creature do that? It's just, it's fundamentally bizarre and nonsensical. And <laughs> I really wanted to represent that in the fairies in Emily's world. They're kind of constantly drawn into kind of the orbit of humans because they're fascinated by humans um, for some reason. And they kind of enjoy helping humans. And so we see that reflected in different fairies in Emily's world, in, in creatures like Poe specifically, um, but also a little bit in, in Wendell's character as well. So, yeah, I really wanted to, to represent that kind of, <laughs> again, kind of fundamental chaos and nonsensicality um, above all else in fairies in Emily's world. We've talked about Emily an awful lot, and I do love her. She is dynamic. She's independent. She's flawed, but she's ultimately kind. But it's got to be said that there's another character in your book that absolutely stole my heart, which was um, Wendell. And I don't think it's going to be too much of a spoiler to say that Wendell is a fairy prince because he starts off looking a little bit fae, and the character you build up if anybody's going to be a fairy prince, is going to be Wendell. Um, and 
I just thought this was brilliant because fairy princes have been included in many tales over the years. But you you talked about the Byronic hero. They're often beautiful and charming or wicked and powerful. And yet Wendell is not. He is he's charming, but he's also really vain, but he's never unkind. He's never unsympathetic. He's he's just a great character. He balances really well. But like I say, is not the typical fairy prince that we were expecting. So how did you come up with such a wonderfully different character for us? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate the <laughs> the praise. Um, uh, Wendell is one of my favorite characters. So I'm always happy to hear appreciation <laughs> for Wendell. And he's such a fun character to write. But yeah, he um, Wendell has really a couple of inspiration. So I mentioned the the shoemaker and the elves earlier and that kind of, that kind of brownie type figure that is almost sort of like a, a helper figure and who, someone who is like drawn to household concerns, which I would say Wendell, Wendell exemplifies. Wendell is, is very much a homebody. <laughs> um, and you know, I don't want to go too much into detail about his character or about his kind of inclinations, but we do see that kind of um, reflected in him. But um, so he was inspired again by by traditional folklore. But also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention um, the Wizard Howell from Howell's Moving Castle by Dan Owen Jones, <laughs> one of my all time favorite authors. And you know, he's he's been an inspiration for me. I think in a lot of respects. But I do think that he was he was definitely part of what excited me like that inspiration was part of what excited me to write Wendell because I've always been such an admirer of that character and of the kind of wonderful contrasts that um the wizard Howell embodies and how Diana Wynne Jones really plays with certain aspects of him that lean maybe more feminine and other aspects that lean more masculine um so yeah those were kind of my two main resources that I drew from when I was crafting Wendell I was just gonna say I don't think you could have advertised your own book better <laughs> I mean, like just dropping Howl in there, dropping mm. Labyrinth in there. I mean, yes. <laughs> referencing all of our favourite things. <laughs> One episode. <laughs> you can see now why I liked it so much. <laughs> um, so, since we're talking about uh, Wendell, and we're talking, you also mentioned about um, Diana Wynne Jones and these like traditional gender roles um it's really interesting to note that that Wendell in your book is the, what we might say is the people person while Emily uh, fails at almost every social engagement that she attempts and ends up accidentally alienating herself from the locals um so given that women are historically portrayed as more emotionally sensitive and potentially socially aware than men um, what prompted you to turn that around? I'm often inspired by um, archetypes, character archetypes. So Emily, Emily is a good example of, um, and I don't really know how whether there's a label for this archetype, but it is essentially the genius who has terrible social skills archetype, <laughs> which we see in a lot of different forms of media. I think probably. The one that always comes to mind for me, first and foremost, is um, Sherlock from the BBC production of, of Sherlock um, with Benedict Cumberbatch. And I think actually that's a good example because um, I do think that we generally see this type of character represented by men more often than women. So right off the bat, 
it was interesting to me to kind of play with that and to kind of have a female character embodying that sort of a role and that sort of an archetype. And Wendell, of course, is Emily's opposite. Like that is basically how Wendell was created. Um, I created Emily first and then I was like, okay, now there has to be a character who is is just completely different from her, but in a complimentary way. Um, I do think that Emily and Wendell, whenever you have these kinds of frenemies to lovers or enemies to lovers, whatever you want to call it, type of relationships, you have to have a reason for why these characters will ultimately, you know, be thrown in together and have to work together. And it is because they complement each other. Their, their sort of failings and strengths, um, they kind of balance each other out in a really good way. And so it makes sense for them to team up. Um, so yeah, Wendell is Emily's opposite. And he is I mean, he, he's masculine in some ways, but I also wanted to kind of associate him with more traditionally feminine coded things. So for example, he's really interested in clothes and he is, he's interested in sewing. He will mend things if need be. And again, these are just sort of traditionally coded feminine qualities and interests because I mean, why not? Um, you know, fairies like Wendell exist in every culture. The folk don't follow our gender norms as we kind of you know, discussed earlier. And so there was just something that was really interesting and kind of creatively freeing about that concept. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Heather. I think we have gone through all of the possible favourite fairy stories of us and our listeners from Labyrinth and Howl. Um, we've got some Sherlock in there as well. We've been talking about turning the unknowable to knowable and we've got grumpy romance. I think that pretty much if that doesn't sell you on Emily Wilde and her encyclopedia then I don't know what will so thank you so much for joining us here it's been an absolute blast thank you so much for having me I've had a lot of fun Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom please help us spread the word subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform we want to hear from you let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper